0: Welcome to Conversation Pace. I'm your host, Brian Rossetti. Just a few quick housekeeping notes here before I dive into the episode. We're getting closer to unveiling a brand new version of our app. This is something we've been working hard on for months, and much of the new design is based on feedback we received from both athletes and coaches. This is actually part of a larger brand refresh for our company. We're excited this can be a whole new chapter for the future of VDOT. Keep a look out for the new and improved VDOT 02 in the coming weeks. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to stay in the loop. Thanks again for all your support. Okay, in episode 31, I spoke with Caitlin Alexander. Caitlin is a physical therapist, multi-sport coach, and VDOT-certified run coach based out of Boulder, Colorado. She also has a certification in Applied Functional Science from the Gray Institute, and she currently works as a PT and biomechanical specialist at Build Sports Performance Labs outside of Boulder. In this episode we discuss our athletic story and transition to training at altitude, balancing triathlon training and how runners can benefit from cross training, the future of PT, and the secret to better running, most stability or mobility plus stability a term coined by the Gray Institute, nerve pain referring as muscle, tendon, or soft tissue problems, and how it represents 20% of injuries she treats. Finally, the foot-brain connection. It's not just about activating your glutes. I hope you enjoy our conversation. and Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Yeah,
0: yeah. So you're calling in from Boulder, correct?
1: Yeah, I am. Um, I live in uh, beautiful Boulder, Colorado.
0: And, and how long have you been there?
1: Uh, I've been in Colorado for it's going on probably almost four years now, um, and I moved out here from the East Coast. So, originally from Virginia, uh, but then I spent five or six years in living in New York City.
0: Oh, nice. Okay, so that's funny. I was in um, after college in Blowing Rock, so a mountain town uh, in North Carolina, mm-hmm. and then moved to New York City. When did you? When were you in New York?
1: Uh, probably 2011 to 2017.
0: Okay, cool. What were you doing then?
1: So, um, I moved there right after college and I originally worked in the music industry, which is very different from what I do now. But, um, I worked in that industry for a couple of years, realized it wasn't all it was cracked up to be and wasn't what I wanted to do. And that was at a time in my life where I, I didn't really know where I wanted my career to go. Um, I always knew I wanted to go back to school, but I just didn't know what for. And then um, everything kind of spun from a, an accident that I got into. And then I um, had to do a bunch of physical therapy afterwards. And I realized that that was a pretty cool profession. Um, but I didn't have any classes from my undergrad experience to apply to PT school. So it was a whole journey of Going back to school part-time, taking pre-rec classes, working part-time for a clinic in New York, and then finally applying to PT school before I moved out here.
0: No way. Wow. So yeah. your undergrad, was it music-related or in business? or?
1: It was It's funny. It was music and Latin American studies.
0: Oh, interesting. And yeah. then what were you doing, you said, in the music industry? I'm, I'm curious.
1: Yeah, I worked uh, for a record label for a bit, and then I worked for a music video company. Um, mostly working with uh, like marketing, PR. Um, the there was like a talent sector of the business and programming sector. So did a bunch yeah. of things. Which label? Um, Which it's label? under Universal Music Group. It was uh, called Decca Label Group, and they mostly had artists. Um, you were classical, jazz, musical theater, that kind of, that kind of genre.
0: So I was, ju- I was actually just going through some of your Instagram posts and actually I, I caught you singing in, in one of them. So, yeah. so it sounds like you're, what was it about the industry that turned you off? Cause it sounds like you're pretty musical yourself. So I'm just curious what yeah. it wasn't cracked up, you know, to be what you thought.
1: Yeah, I uh, I just don't think I think the record label industry is kind of a dead industry and um, it almost felt like I was working in the twilight zone and it was it was not a very uh, stable type of environment to work in. And you would go in every day wondering if you were going to get laid off because labels were merging with other labels and Mm. jobs were becoming redundant. Um, The pay wasn't great. I was working long hours and it just seems so glamorous from the outside, but once you're actually in it, it's it was kind of a nightmare.
0: Wow, wow, yeah. interesting. And then, were you running at all when you were in the city? Like, when did you get into um, endurance sports? Did it come when you left the music industry, or did you have you know some connection to it prior?
1: I I've been running since I was eight years old. Maybe Um, my dad is a big marathon runner and he got me into running from an early age. And I think I ran my first 5k when I was eight. I have like a picture of me in this (laughs) classic nineties jumpsuit, like um, windbreaker, like crazy nineties colors. It's fantastic. But I, yeah, so I ran through middle school, high school and I got burnt out. I was always injured. Um, I didn't have a great coach and didn't do any type of strength training. And as a physical therapist, looking back now, I could see all of the mistakes that I made. But, um, so then when I got to college, I didn't want to run at all, did not want to like one little step. So I didn't do any running pretty much throughout college. And, uh, in my fourth year i slowly started to get the itch to come back um so i started running again a little bit and uh then when i moved to new york i did run and well not competitively i did a couple races here and there i did the new york city marathon a couple times um but it wasn't until i really moved out to colorado that i got pretty competitive um not just with running but with triathlon too and it's it's hard not to when you're when you're in an environment like this with so many great, athletes,
0: Yeah, that's cool. So, um, would you say you were turned off because of your coach or was it just a combination injuries? And, um, although you were competitive, it just wasn't something you thought made sense, you know, getting in once you got to college.
1: Yeah, it was mostly the injury aspect that I just Hmm. couldn't, find a consistency in running. Cause I just had injury after injury. Um, it was actually pretty good in, in middle school and cross country. And I was, you know, placing top 10 in, in the regional district state races, but, uh, it was, it was pretty much the injuries that, you know, made me, made me stop, made me, uh, or turned me off of the sport rather.
0: Yeah. Was it something Something obvious or like you guys are running a crazy amount of mileage for, for young athletes or was it pretty unique to you Um and you just didn't have the right guidance to, to kind of get over the hump?
1: I just, we weren't running a crazy amount of miles. I just don't think I had the right guidance. I wasn't doing any strength training. I wasn't doing any mobility work. I didn't know what I needed to do. And um, you know, I wasn't wasn't really doing a warm up before my runs or before my races, and uh, I don't think my form was very good, and so I did, obviously didn't really have anybody to consult with about that. Um, and I, for the longest time, just thought, you know, it's my my biomechanics are the issue, my form's the issue. Like I'll never be a high mileage runner because things always fall apart when I get to a certain point. Um, but over the past couple years, that, that philosophy has changed a bit.
0: Yeah. And then the P, you mentioned your experience with PT in New York, um, was it more just the process and the, in combination with your professional career or was there something that stood out in that PT experience that inspired you? Like how, did, how did it, um, progress, you know, from you making a huge life change?
1: yeah so I'd never really um, experienced the, that career path before, even going to physical therapy. I never went to PT when I was younger because my dad my dad's a doctor. so anytime I had anything going on, I always consulted him. And so I'd never really experienced what the profession was until that point in New York. And I you know I grew up being active, I ran, I swam, I danced, I did all of this stuff. Um, but the beauty of physical therapy was, you know, the relationships that you can create with your patients and, you know, you see them at their most vulnerable points and you help them get past that and get through it. And I mm-hmm. thought that was such a beautiful thing, um, to combine movement that I love. And I didn't realize how much I loved it prior to that. Um, but combining that with, you know, with, uh, just, you know, emotionally connecting with patients and, and helping them get back, get back to doing what they love.
0: That's cool. Um, and then when does the, when does the triathlon, like when you move to Boulder, um, does, or do you go right in the triathlon? Is it something you have thought about? Cause you have been running doing some marathons. Um, but when does the competitive tri stuff start, start happening?
1: Yeah. So I, it's funny, I actually, uh, started doing triathlon in high school. Um, mm-hmm. there were a couple short, uh, youth triathlons in my area. And so me and my younger sister signed up for those and, um, had a blast doing them. Cause you know, I had the swimming background, um, cause I grew up swimming as well. And then I had the running background, cycling wasn't super strong, but <laughs> it got better over the years. And then, uh, when I moved to New York, I joined a club, Empire Triathlon Club, and Mm -hmm. uh, started training with them, eventually started coaching with them. And uh, when I was in New York, I did my first Ironman distance triathlon and just got hooked, Um, realized that I really excel at the longer distance stuff. And then I moved out to Colorado and you know my goal was always to try to make it to the Ironman world championships and so I got a different coach I worked hard and had a couple races where I was super close and then in 2019 was when I finally uh qualified for for Kona which was an amazing experience but obviously it was supposed to happen in 2020 and it was yeah so hopefully this fall twenty twenty one i will I'll be there on the big island
0: that's the plan this fall um yeah yeah, yeah I saw that uh, just seeing the reports last night about the olympics and yeah um, tokyo which is real such a bummer um so you're you guys are still hoping and um obviously a much different circumstance but it it seems like this fall there's a good chance that the event's going to go on I and mean, what have they said so far is it pretty much they can't tell you much at this point?
1: Yeah, I can't. I mean, I haven't really heard anything regarding yeah. that. Um, there are a couple races that are supposed to be happening this spring, um, as early as March. And I haven't heard anything about that, but I'm not super confident that those will go on. Yeah, uh, but I'm just, you know, I'm just, holding out hope that it's going to happen and I'm just going to train every day. Like it's going to happen. Cause that's the best thing you can do right now. And if it doesn't happen well, then I, you know, I didn't really lose anything. I, I gained some good fitness and some good strength. That's I think the best, the best you can do with that. So.
0: Yeah. And what was, um, you were, you said you're an East coaster and, uh, Transitioning to Boulder, do do you think about the altitude now, or is that is that always was that a big transition for you, or no?
1: That was actually a huge transition for me, and I know that altitude affects some people more than it affects others, but I felt like it really affected me when I moved out here, and I I think the hardest thing because you know moving from New York City, which you're below sea level sometimes. (laughs) but it felt like when I moved out here, it was the hardest thing was to not think about, you know, my paces that I ran back in New York. And I would always get caught up on that and always get really discouraged because I just couldn't run the same speeds and the same times as I could back on the East Coast. And it took honestly, I think it was more more of a mental barrier to get over than more than anything. And it took probably a good six months to a year to really feel like, okay, this is my new normal, you know, Mm. thinking about where I was back in New York city, you know, that was then this is now, and this is where I'm starting from.
0: Right. Wow. So it took almost a year. That's, that's a big deal. Um, So I want to talk about the, the balancing triathlon training, um, we have so many runners on our app that obviously adding cycling and swimming into their training um, or you get triathletes who you know, will make a transition or they'll shift their focus for a period of time where they wanna improve their running and, and sort of pivot. Um, so I, I remember seeing a post that you did and you had said something like struggles of a struggles of a triathlete or hashtag struggles of a triathlete. And um, I think during that cycle you had transition. It was like a moment where okay, I'm gonna this is opportunity I guess to to uh, focus more on my running and improve my running leg. Um, so I'm curious how that experience went when you were increasing your running and and how you need to needed to adapt to it.
1: Yeah. So 2020 brought quite a few blessings that I wasn't expecting without racing happening. And uh, so, you know, I, 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 wanted to continue training. I just didn't want to take the time off. And so my coach and I were trying to think of, of, you know, ways we could use some of this free, um, unpressured time to just experiment with a couple of things. So I had a good section in, the late summer where I was just focusing mostly on the bike and I did some bike racing too, um, just to see how much I could improve in that sport. And then this last fall we did the same thing with running. So I had a period of, I think two months or so where I was just focusing on building up my running volume. And I still did some swimming and some biking, but it was mostly running. And I really discovered a lot about what, you know, what I can handle as, as an athlete and as a runner. And it really, I really surprised myself. So with triathlon training, it's, I tell this too, cause I, I coach as well. I tell this to my athletes too, that it's, it's when you're training for three sports, it is really hard to really improve in one discipline. You know, you're always spreading yourself thin. Um, and so it's, one thing that I do with my athletes just to make some good gains in one sport is I do focused blocks of training. So I have maybe a couple weeks where they're focusing on the bike and they are still swimming and running, but the majority of their time is spent cycling. And then, you know, I'll have a couple weeks of just base training and then a couple weeks of a focus block in another sport. And I found that that's. That's the best way to really make some gains in a sport if you're looking to do that. Because otherwise, it's like you'll just make little in- incremental gains here and there when you're evenly splitting your time across all three sports. So when we did those blocks last year and I you know, was spending all of that time running, I actually felt – you know, I didn't know how things were gonna work. You know, in my history, I was like, oh, maybe you know, I could get injured um, if I increase increase my mileage above this point. And I think up to that point, I had never run more than fifty miles a week. Mm. I think that was my that was my limit. Yeah, um, when I was like marathon training in the past, and I had probably four weeks where I was at forty five to fifty miles running consistently. Um, quite a bit of it was some intensity type work. And and then I finally, I think my last week before I ended up taking a break was over 60 miles. And that was the most i had ever run in a week. And I was really shocked and I really surprised myself. And I found that the more that I ran, the stronger I felt um, and the better I felt running. And just to have that kind of consistency just totally changed my perception of running. Uh, and it's also important to note that I I had to spend a little extra time doing, you know, daily mobility stuff. Um, I was mm-hmm. doing some sort of activation routine prior to every run. And I'm so happy that I finished that 60 mile week, you know, with no niggles, no injuries, nothing felt super strong, felt great. So that was I'm grateful that I was able to have that experience last year without the pressure, of, you know, preparing for for an Ironman or, or something like that.
0: Yeah, and do you feel like that that wouldn't come without the the tri background, like without strength of, you know, the multi sport sort of that base? I always wonder like if if there's a lesson there um that your running wouldn't have been as strong, you know, as a result.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a possibility because when I was doing all that mileage, I was still swimming and cycling, you know, and still do a long ish ride on the weekends and like some easier rides during the week. So I had that cross training. So it wasn't all just, you know, impact, impact, impact with the running. Um, So I think, you know, I tell I have athletes who are just solely runners and I always put cross training in their schedules, too, because I think. That's a really important component, not just to mix up, you know, which which structures, which tissues you're loading, but also to get some of those aerobic gains just without that impact of running.
0: Yeah, that's the flip side. I wanted to talk about that because um, most athletes on VDOT, they're they're focused on running. Like I said, many of them are triathletes who are just, you know, shifting their focus to improve running many of them will say like running's my weakest link and you know i want to just focus on on that side this year or the cycle um yeah. but like i said most are runners that are obviously adding in cross training i think this is always like an important question um you get some people who might jump on the bike and spin for 40 minutes and you know jump in quickly and in, into the pool and obviously running is their their focus but yeah. How much, how much do runners really need to add in? Like, if they want to see gains, obviously there's benefits, right, with recovery and um, it's non impact. Um, but what about in terms of like real gains, like aerobic gains? Like, if, some, if you've got a runner's maybe at, their balance is three or four runs a week, right? Otherwise, they struggle to recover or they get hurt. How yeah. much swimming do you really need to do like to for to really benefit you know the running um, your running goals?
1: So. yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so if you are an athlete who is solely a runner, you know that's your primary focus, I would say probably getting in two cross training sessions a week would be ideal because you still want that consistency, you know, with training that aerobic system. So if you're going to run three times a week and take four days off a week, um, you're going to have, at least in my experience, you're going to have a difficult time trying to get some consistency and really gain some fitness. So that's where the cross training can come in, um, there. And I, I have found that, cycling tends to translate a little bit better than swimming just because of the type of musculature that you use. So um, if you're looking for, you know, cycling or swimming, you know, which one would be better uh, catered towards running, I would probably go with the cycling aspect. And it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to go onto the bike and do like a workout here and there. And unless you want to supplement your run training with some cycling training, you know, in terms of gaining power gaining aerobic fitness that sort of thing but otherwise just going on the bike and doing you know an aerobic like zone two kind of easy uh session once once a week once or twice a week should be should be plenty um and i you know for some of the higher level runners who run six six days a week Mm -hmm. uh, my boyfriend here in boulder is an elite runner and he uh, when he was training with a team, he would do cross training every week, they all would, you know, swimming or cycling, um, just to get their bodies out of that same repetitive pattern over and over again.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and do I mean, do you feel like most runners, you get some who are really good on the run, that's their focus, and they're improving, but do you feel like most often, runners aren't cross training enough. When I say cross train, I'm I'm talking. I'm not talking about you know strength. We can talk about the the stability stuff or the, the core work, things like that. But so cross train, I'm saying like cycling, swimming, you know, aqua draw, anything else um, mm-hmm. more aerobic. Do you feel like most runners don't? Even if there's, they are staying relatively healthy obviously runners get hurt all the time. It's just part of the, the sport. But, um, do you feel like the many are missing out? Like that's a big, like you should be doing it. Even if you are relatively healthy, you're missing out from a lot of the benefits. Um, even if running's your focus, do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think the biggest thing with runners is because it is, such a repetitive sport that oftentimes in the clinic, I see most of what I see honestly are repetitive stress injuries, you know, the same stress applied to that tissue over and over again until it breaks down. So whether you're cross training, whether you're strength training, whether you're even mixing up your running with like trail running, anything to give it some sort of variety and variability is incredibly important not just to reduce risk of injury, but just to make you a stronger, more well-rounded, more balanced athlete.
0: So it's, it's really like, from your perspective, it should be viewed like, unless you're a runner who's like, cause sometimes you get people who are like, I want to break three hours, but I can only run, you know, three, four times a week. And you know, they might be saying that for multiple reasons could be work or whatever, but, um, And then a lot of times as a coach, you're thinking like, oh man, like that's that's not much running, we're going to have (laughs) to, hello, we're going to have to, um, supplement it, you know, with, with cross training. And so, and maybe in that case, it's like, okay, you have to do a ton of cycling or swimming to sort of supplement the, how little you're running. Um, but, but you're saying for the most part runners should really just look at it as a means to avoid repetitive stress injuries when we talk about adding in cycling or swimming.
1: Right, exactly. And I I would say, you know, in the clinic, working as a physical therapist, working with runners every day, uh, the biggest issue I see is, and especially it's been an issue this past year with COVID and people taking a break and, you know, probably sitting on their couch all day, every day. Um, Is that people are just weak. They've lost a lot of strength. um, And so once they've decided to go back to running, they, you know, they try to go back at their level that they were prior. And then that tends to cause a bunch of issues. So you've probably heard this before, but that you don't run to get strong. You need to be strong to run, sort of thing. And so whether that's making you strong is, um, you know, going in and doing this variety, um, adding some variety to your routine, doing cross training, doing strength training, something along the lines of that. I think overall, um, it's going to make runners stronger. It's going to make them better athletes. It's going to make them more durable, more resilient. Um, and and I also just wanted to go back to the point you mentioned before about you know how some runners may only be able to run three times a week, three, four times a week. And mm-hmm. it is because of their work-life balance, um, you know, their um, responsibilities with their families. But if it is something that is, you know, because of their body, because of their mechanics, because they're always getting injured, something like that, that's limiting them to that inconsistency. um, This is something that I've experienced, experimented with a lot the past year with myself and my athletes, um, because I've been there before where I thought that you know I could only run three times a week because if I ran any more than that, if I ran two days in a row, like something would happen. Um, and I've actually found that if you increase the consistency and the frequency of your runs, but you keep them below like that injury threshold, then you're gonna have a lot more success uh, not only in improving your run dis- your run, sport, but also reducing your risk of injury. So for example, one of my athletes, um, you know, and she had had this when I was working with her, but she had been dealing with chronic plantar fasciitis for probably a year or two. And she was going to see a PT in her area and, you know, wasn't really getting better. It was just kind of lingering. And I was having her run maybe two or three times a week. And she was a triathlete. So we were swimming and biking as well. But, um, you know, there would be some weeks where she wouldn't run at all. And and even, you know, one period where a couple months she wasn't really running. And so we decided to switch things up again. Um, And kind of contrary to what most people would probably do, I had her running more frequently. So instead of these two, three times a week running, I had her running five or six days a week. But the runs were kept shorter. So like some of them were just 20 or 30 minutes, something to just get her out there and Mm. and get that body, you know, used to those running mechanics, gave her an opportunity to really work more consistently on some of the mobility and pre run stuff that she was doing. It gave her more consistency to practice some of her, you know, run form drills and movement cues she was working on. And it's been probably... A year and a half almost two years now that she's been running consistently hasn't had any issues at all with her plantar fasciitis pain so that's that experience and then you know just me experimenting with my training too has really changed my perspective on on uh run training
0: do you feel like that's that's becoming more of a trend i don't know if it's related but i feel like from what I've seen from PTs lately is um, it's not, I guess, I don't know if aggressive is the right word, but it's like, um, it's more like, it's sort of like anti-rest, right? Like, I I feel like I hear that more often than when I was younger, where you think, okay, shoot, I have to take time off or I have to rest. And now it's like, no, like, you need to be like go out and run and, and do strength and, you know, rest can actually be worse. Um, is, is that sort of related to the way you think about, you know, approach to preventing injuries, but also kind of working through them? Obviously it depends, but
1: yeah, I always say it depends and that's, yeah. that's what all of our teachers told us in PT school. <laughs> Funny, <laughs> But, um, yeah, I don't, I, I definitely don't think rest is bad, first and foremost. You know, some people are like, no days off and, and I, well, I, <laughs> think I'm that. I
0: don't and mean that it's bad. To- it's just that like rest probably might in many cases, right? Like doesn't necessarily contribute to um the healing process in, in some regards, right? Like you right. can't you know, it could it could be making it worse in some instances, but correct me if I'm uh you know, totally destroying that, that idea or (laughs) sending people down the wrong path.
1: No, no, you're actually right. Um, so when it comes to tissue healing, obviously different types of tissues respond better or worse to rest. So for example, if you have like a bone stress injury, that is pretty much one of the only scenarios where I would say, okay, you need to rest, like loading Mm -hmm. is just going to make it worse. But For a lot of tendon injuries that I see, so like Achilles tendonitis, um, you know, patellar tendonitis, knee pain, um, things like that. Um, There's a ton of research out there to support um, the idea that loading is best for tendons and rest. They usually do not respond to rest. So when it comes to tendon healing, um, just making some of those physiological changes and restructuring within the tendon, the tendon needs to be loaded. So I've had runners come into the clinic who've had, you know, patellar tendonitis, knee pain, um, and they've taken, they take time off of running and it gets a little bit better. And then they return to running and it's back, you know, it hasn't really gone away. Um, And that's because they took time off and they rested and they didn't load the tendon, you know, Mm -hmm. to to make it more resilient and durable. So when it comes to injuries like that and uh, tissues like that, that's where uh, loading is important and rest isn't really going to help. When I say loading, I don't mean, you know, going out and continuing to run 30, 40 miles a week on it i mean like intentional loading whether it's through specific physical therapy exercises strength training type stuff um running if you can run with like a very low level of pain um my big thing with my patients and my app you know you it's okay to feel something when you're out there running like you shouldn't be afraid of pain it's it's your body's way of trying to communicate with you but you should be aware of different levels of pain and what that means so you know, when you're going out there and you have like a two or three out of 10 level of discomfort, typically that's okay. Um, if it gets, if it's getting worse than that, climbing up to five, six, or it's getting worse throughout the run, then that's usually your body's signal to stop. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, listening to your body, listening to the message that it's trying to tell you is, is incredibly important, but usually with, um, tendon injuries like that, you know, you're going to, you're going to have a, you're going to feel something and you're going to have a little bit of discomfort when you're going through those exercises or when you're going out and running and, and things like that. But, um, but, but yeah, so when it comes to rest and loading with those injuries, loading is the best. Um, but in terms of just general training and um, running you know, you do need those rest days here and there because that's really where your body absorbs all of that training stress. And that's really where you build your fitness.
0: Yeah, we always like to say, obviously, um, rest is a part of training, right? Not avoiding it. And I think, I mean, you get a lot of type A people that we deal with. But I'm curious, like when you talked about increasing the frequency and you had a lot of success, Um obviously you were limiting duration and sort of keeping maybe someone out of a, a higher risk a zone if they're out there for a certain period of time loading and you know pounding the pavement, etc. But does that also sort of speak to so many issues, right? And like society and how we sit so often that just that it's really more about like movement like you there should be some kind of movement every day right we don't want to um we want to make sure people are still resting enough um to reap the benefits of a lot of these workouts but when you increase that frequency was it is it really like just the, the, i think the lesson that i'm taking is that people just, we just need to move every day whether it's just there are some mobility exercises or yoga or whatever it is like you've got to be moving or walking like every day i mean it's, it's yeah. because of the way we sit and, and the nature of um the it's us sitting and looking at our phones and our posture and things like that you know yeah in the car we're in the car and at least some people
1: hunched over slouching yeah um i would say majority of the, the issues i see in the clinic are as a result either directly or indirectly um, of sitting a lot during the day, unfortunately. And it has gotten worse um, throughout the pandemic because people are sitting in, you know, yeah. setups that they're not used to, um, or sitting on their couch, hunched over on their computer, things like that. So um yeah, rest is important, but it's also important to note that you do need to keep the blood flowing, you know, you do need to keep keep your tissues moving. Just going and sitting on the couch all day is honestly probably going to make you feel worse than going out for a light uh, walk or doing yoga class or doing a little mobility session. So when it comes to tissue healing, you know, tissues heal best with blood flow. And if you're just sitting on the couch all day and everything is kind of stagnant, you're you're only hindering your recovery.
0: So I've been short try trying to transition to a standing desk lately and um what are some of the concerns if any when when someone makes that transition i just wanted to ask quickly like i do find my like my back like i'm i get really fatigued towards the end of the afternoon um if i've been standing most of the day and obviously i'm constantly kind of shifting my weight and and bouncing around and doing weird things that i've noticed um to account for it and compensate and um but what are some of the concerns with the standing desk and is it just the same deal where it's a matter of like hey take a few minutes to to walk or do some hip rotations or whatever do you know what i mean like are there concerns that people are now standing in place for too long
1: yeah yeah, standing in place is, in my opinion, a lot more challenging than walking for that same amount of time, just because it, it it does require a lot of postural control and it does require a lot of of core strength too. And a lot of us, even in standing, have developed um, pretty bad postures just from from sitting, from you know being dominant on one side more than the other. And so sometimes standing with the weight of gravity. On your body can almost yeah. exacerbate those things. So, for example, if you mentioned you know your back gets sore. Um, so if you're standing in, you know, if the front of your hip is super tight and you're standing with, you know, an, an anterior pelvic tilt is what we call it. Call it, but basically, your you know your pelvis tilted forward because of that tightness in your hip flexors. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a lot of compression on your low back. And so if you're standing again, with the weight of gravity down through your spine and you're already in a posture that's compressing those vertebra over time, that's going to get angrier and angrier. So I actually had a conversation with one of my patients about this this past week, but um, I think the best thing you can do if you do want to start incorporating a standing desk into your your work from home setup is to try to vary your movement. Mm. So don't just try to stand for five hours, six hours, seven, eight hours a day, but you can alternate between sitting, between standing. If you are standing, you know, just move if you can, Um, you know, whether it's doing little lunges right to left, whether it's, you know, marching in place, something where you're not just statically standing for an extended period of time. Um, And another important thing to note too is, what kind of footwear you're standing in. So um, running shoes in general, the trend over the past decades um, has been to put us in shoes with a heel to toe drop. So the heel is higher than the toe. So we're basically running in our almost like heeled shoes, not high heel, but you kind of still does the same, has the same effect on the body as if we were to wear high heel shoes. So if you're going to be standing all day, um, just be cognizant of what kind of footwear you're wearing. I'm not saying that you need to stand barefoot, um, but try to stand in in a shoe that is pretty minimal, that has a low heel to toe drop so that that's not negatively impacting your posture as well.
0: This is, this is assuming we, we go back to the office. I'm, I'm, I'm at home now, so I'm, I'm barefoot. Um,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Some people wear shoes. They're on their house every day. Yeah. You know?
0: <laughs> I know that drives me nuts, but that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I can talk about this stuff for days. So I want to, um, I wish we had so much more time, but I'll try and I'm very curious how the clinic has been doing, how you guys have innovative, innovated, excuse me, or evolved. Um, during the pandemic, and and has some of it just accelerated? Like I know telehealth. I've spoken with some PTS, and you know they're they're very bullish and um, pro telehealth, and they felt like the, the industry was kind of moving in that direction regardless of the pandemic. So I'm just curious, in your experience, and and what you're seeing, and and what you think.
1: Yeah. So I work at Build Sports Performance Lab and Physical Therapy. It's a sports uh, clinic right outside of Boulder in Louisville, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And we are a very niche clinic. We work with a lot of runners, a lot of cyclists and triathletes. Um, And so it's been... The past year has been interesting, to say the least. I think when everything kind of shut down last spring, things got pretty quiet around the place. And in Colorado was pretty – we've been pretty good in general about, you know, COVID cases and Mm -hmm. mask wearing and and all of that stuff. But a lot of Coloradans can also just be um, very – very not, I don't even want to say like hypochondriacs, but they're just very, um, safe and, and very in tune to their health. And so when everything shut down in the spring, nobody really wanted to go outside and nobody really wanted to go anywhere. And so races were canceled and people stopped training. I had a couple athletes who just wanted to take a break and didn't want to train when their races were canceled. And so there was definitely a quiet period, you know, April, May, um, mm-hmm. and it was it was a bit of a struggle i mean we did we did telehealth uh but you know we rely on people being active and people training for races, and you know when all of that stops it's it's kind of like well what what do we do now? So we definitely had to be creative and innovative, and we started upping our content game, our social media game, um started getting our name out there more, which. Has helped a lot because now we are kind of booked and super busy. Um, um, that's great. Yeah, but um, but yeah, it was it was you rough.
0: Point pent- up demand, or you feel like you guys have the pandemic actually helped you reach a lot of new people?
1: I think both. Um, yeah. The pandemic definitely helped us reach quite a few people, and I I only started working there. Um, it's been almost a year now, and um prior to that, we weren't super well known on on social media and on the internet, and so i I kind of took that role and and changed that a lot. And I think that's really helped to get you know the clinic out there to get the brand out there. You know, when people were comfortable going out again, they knew about us, and so. Over the summer, you know, when everybody was buying bikes, and you, I don't know if you ride or if you've been to bike shops, but it's been hard for bike shops to keep stuff on the shelves because everybody was buying bikes. You know, really? So, That's yeah,
0: buying started- bikes.
1: So yeah.
0: You scare me whenever I see you in the big helmet and. <laughs> 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 yeah,
1: no, I don't ride in that helmet every day. <laughs>
0: I just think keep in mind that I'm used to running around cyclists in Central park, and there there's not a lot of love between uh, between either, and I understand both I've sides so i'm not I'm not picking on bikers, but um yeah. but yeah, I'm just generally scared of like when my kids get on a bike, I'm like you know hovering around them like terrified they're gonna take a header, you know
1: no i I've been there I've been that cyclist in Central Park riding with my team like yelling
0: at runners or walkers who are just not looking like crossing the street yeah yeah Yeah. scary
1: it is but um but yeah so uh, when everyone started buying bikes and riding over the summer um we are we picked up a lot because we also do bike fitting i'm a bike fitter as well and everyone came in with their bikes to get fitted um whether it was road bike gravel bike mountain bike Mm -hmm. all bikes so things picked up a lot there. Um, and they have kind of stayed pretty steady until the end of the year. Um, and then kind of the beginning of this year has been a lot busier than I thought it was going to be, which is great. I can't really complain. Wow. I think people are, are a little tired of how yeah. the, how the 2020 has gone, you know, being inactive, I've seen a lot of people in the clinic that, you know, their mental health has taken a huge toll, not only with the, with the pandemic and the uncertainty of that, but just being inactive and they don't like the way that they're feeling. Maybe they've gained a couple pounds. They just, they're just not feeling great. And so they're like, it's always January 1st, you know, people want to, want to be like, okay, I'm going to get back to things now. I'm going to get myself on a good plan on a good roll and so we've seen quite a couple of people in the clinic, um, both runners, cyclists, and triathletes uh, that, you know, that just want to get back to their old way of life.
0: Yeah, that's encouraging. Um, not surprising, but it's encouraging to hear. And um, I hope, especially as we get into summer, that you guys could, you know, have you know, your biggest year yet, hopefully. Um, yeah. there, there's a couple things I want to touch on. Before we let you go, and one is most stability, um, which I don't think I've heard before. But so, so you're combining mobility and, and stability there. Um, you talked about it being a secret to better running. I just wanted to hear you speak to that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, most stability is a term um, that's uh, that was coined by Dr. Gary Gray, and he's mm-hmm. the head of the Gray Institute. If you've if you've ever heard of that, but the Gray Institute is pretty much all about functional 3D movement, you know, all of our joints, all of our muscles, muscle fibers, they all function in three planes of motion. So, you know, if we're going to be training them, that's how we should train them. So um, stability, like you said before, combination of mobility and stability. So mobility you know is the ability of your joints to move throughout a given range of motion. Stability is you know, the ability of the body to maintain that postural control, that postural equilibrium, and to support those joints during that movement. So um, I think I when I wrote that article about this, you know, I was speaking primarily about the hip. Um yeah. but this applied to a bunch of different joints, and the hip is probably the biggest one here because it is a multi-axial joint, you know, it's a ball and socket joint. So You know, considering runners and cyclists and triathletes um, in the clinic see a lot of issues of um, whether it's like a mobility restriction or just a stability restriction um, or inhibition in the clinic um, that can lead to injuries here and there, decreased performance, things like that. So um, in terms of the hip, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I feel tight you know, I feel tightness, you know, maybe in the front of my hip, maybe in the back of my hip, maybe in the the inside near the groin. Um, I feel like, you know, my muscle is just tight and I want to stretch it. That's like the most common thing that I've heard. But yeah. an important thing to be mindful of is what that what is your body trying to tell you when you perceive that tightness? Is it actually the muscle is chronically shortened? Or is it you know, your central nervous system's um, reaction to a muscle that's being overworked or being chronically lengthened. So I've spoken to this before, but, you know, talking about what sitting can do to your posture chronically over a long period of time is that, you know, when we're in that sitting position, the front of our hips, our hip flexors are in a chronically shortened state. And then, when we go to stand up, that can tilt our pelvis forward into that anterior pelvic tilt. So what that ends up doing is shortens the hip flexors in the front, compresses the low back in the back. But on the other end of the spectrum, that puts our hamstrings in a lengthened position because of where they attach up at the the pelvis. Um, so they're in a lengthened position. Your abdominals are in a lengthened position, and it just doesn't allow for your body to really engage your core or your glutes when you're running or walking. So hamstring tightness, one of the biggest things I see is usually not a result of your hamstrings really being tight. It's a result of your pelvic position and your body mm-hmm. always putting those hamstrings in a lengthened position. So that's why I usually never prescribe hamstring stretching because you usually don't need to stretch a muscle that is already lengthened. If that yeah. makes
0: sense. And, and so you're saying the hips, um tend to be a big root of many problems like in the chain it's 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 the hips but also um you talk a lot about like teaching the brain movements like it's not just about activating your glutes right that's like kind of like a buzz um term yeah. these days like oh your glutes aren't activating but you're saying that it's more about sort of teaching the brain to maybe get out of these patterns and some of these movements, then a lot of the problems originate in the hips.
1: Yeah. The hips, I always say, are the steering wheel for, you know, the rest of the leg. Um, and they, Mm -hmm. they, because the hip joint is naturally a more unstable joint than other joints in the body. It's incredibly important to make sure that they feel stable. So kind of going back to that most stability term, um, you know, when you're feeling, that tightness in a muscle or in a joint, it is usually your body's nervous system. That's telling you that something's going on there that it doesn't like. And usually it's related to that instability. So when your body senses that instability, your brain and your nervous system, their protective response is to put the brakes on whatever movement's happening because the body feels threatened. And so it's just trying to protect it essentially. So kind of going back again to the, the most stability concept um, you need both mobility and stability within the joint in order for that joint to move freely and uninhibited.
0: And then that's interesting. What, and I want to just finish on, cause there was something else that I read that you, um, that blog was great. Um, I'm blanking on the name of it where you're writing some of these posts. Yeah. Um, is it, is it through the PT clinic or is that separate?
1: It's through the clinic. Yeah. We okay. have a blog on our website there. So I've, there are a bunch of posts there if, um, if listeners are interested. Yeah. We'll,
0: we'll definitely, we'll link to it too um, in the, the description of the episode for sure. Um, nerve pain. You talked about 20% of injuries you treat um, are related to a nerve issue um, where they're presenting themselves as muscle, tendon, or soft, or soft tissue. Um, yeah. So that was kind of uh, interesting to me. I, I've never, I don't think, I've heard that before. So, any so twenty percent of the injuries, like if someone comes in and maybe they've got, you know, a tight calf or something that's preventing them, you know, from running or hindering them, you're saying like twenty percent of the of people are experiencing like referral pain, and that. It really has nothing to do with the calf. It's it's related to nerve to nerve issues.
1: Yeah, so either referral pain or um, you know, a weakness coming from the spine that is overloading that calf. So I kinda of see both. And um the human body is super complex, um, but really interesting and I why so I love working with it every day. But even even I some days, you know have have questions about you know what is the body trying to tell me you know what is going on here it's like it speaks a different language and you have to decode but but um but the biggest thing with especially for like higher mileage um athletes is anytime someone comes in with an injury like a peripheral injury something in their leg even in their arm I mean for swimmers or climbers things like that I always you know will look at the cervical spine too but speaking just with runners um I see in the clinic oftentimes um, a peripheral injury. So like you mentioned, like a calf strain um, could be a result of something not functioning right in the lumbar spine. So we have things called myotomes and they are how different levels of the spine innervate different muscles in the leg. And that is kind of our key way of decoding what, what the body, what the pain means or what the symptoms mean. And so we go through kind of with every patient and we do a myotome screen just to make sure everything is firing the way it's supposed to be from the, from the spine. Mm. Um, we find any deficiencies there or asymmetry side to side. Um, then we go in and try to decode that and figure out, you know, is that a reason why the structure is being overloaded, you know, in the leg? So for example, I... I had a runner recently come in who had a calf strain that kind of came out of nowhere. Um, She hadn't had like a history of calf pain running. And so anytime someone comes in with something like that, you know, nothing changed in her training volume. Um, She wasn't wearing different shoes. She didn't do like a crazy high intensity run. Then I always go and look at the back because, you know, things don't just happen, you know, there's always a reason why something is happening.
0: Yeah. So or you people, like I'm experiencing this now, but I thought it was just, I'm just getting old and this is what happens. Like <laughs> that <for the> reason, <laughs> like it never used to happen to me before, but um, once yeah. I hit 40, like forget it.
1: You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and uh, we actually found that she had um a little bit of compression in one level of her spine that was, kind of inhibiting that nerve signal to her foot. And so she was experiencing what we call drop foot or um, just dorsiflexion weakness. So the inability to really bring those toes up to your face. Mm. And so she was running, you know, constantly landing on the forefoot on that side because she couldn't bring those toes up. And so that was putting a ton of extra strain on her calf. So we kind of cleared out the low back um, made sure everything was firing the way it was supposed to. We did treat the calf cause it was a calf strain, you know, localized Right. Um, and things kind of cleared up after like a week or two with her. But so that's an example of how, you know, motor wise things can appear as nerve related injuries, but kind of going back to the article that I wrote, yes, nerves refer pain. Muscles can also refer pain. So that's when it gets kind of tricky is that, yeah. um, you know, anytime someone's complaining of pain that isn't poor, poorly localized or it's hard for them to describe where the pain is, you know, they're kind of like, you know, where, where are your symptoms? And they're kind of pointing around like, you know, their thigh and they're like, oh, I don't know, it's it's kind of mm-hmm. here. Maybe it's sometimes here, but I don't know. It just seems kind of, you know, all there. And, um, and, you know, you go in and you can't really find any tissue that's tender, or sensitive to touch. Um, and they don't have like a good pattern of when they're experiencing that pain and when they're not, that's when I always look at, okay, is this actually, you know, the muscle tissue? Is this tendon? Or is this referral pain either from another muscle or from the spine? Interesting.
0: And, And going back to the calf example is, so you guys can actually decode, like that's your approach. It's not just trial and error, like, man, we've been treating this calf and clearly it's not responding. So we got to investigate further up the chain. Like you're, you're sort of starting there and feel like you, you can decode it without trial and error of like treating the symptom or the, where it's referring first and realizing that that's not helping.
1: Yeah, we, we definitely start there. We're very in tune with, you know, how the spine affects, affects your body has a huge influence over that. And so, that's always the biggest thing is that we just want to clear the spine, make sure that that's not a contributing factor. And if it's not, then we can go straight to, you know, the source of the pain, um, and, and, and treat that there. But, but we, I mean, I work in a cash pay clinic, you know, we, we're not in network with any insurance providers. And so people, a lot of people pay out of pocket to come see us. And when people pay out of pocket, you know, they expect, yeah to to see results and so we we can't rely on you know them coming in to see us two times a week for eight weeks you know it's it's kind of like all right we got to figure this out soon and we we got to make a change you know sometimes it does take a couple of visits to really to really knock it out um sometimes longer if it's been a chronic pain kind of issue but but clients and patients that come see us they want they want results fast
0: and you'd you no, of course, um, that's such a big challenge. And then you mentioned like aggressive foam rolling, aggressive stretching. Um, like that's so common, right? It's just part of people like thinking like always more is better, I guess. And, you know, well, otherwise I'm not getting as much out of it, something, but, um, do you feel like that can cause over time, some of these issues or is it just, it's more of an irritant, like that's, that's the problem. It's just irritating, not necessarily the, the cause.
1: Yeah. I, I actually see that, um, a bit in the clinic, um, some of the higher, strong, higher level athletes that, you know, they feel a niggle here and then their direct response to foam roll it as aggressively as possible. And usually that ends up making it worse, <laughs> <Rocking out. laughs> whether, whether it is like just a muscle thing or a tendon thing, but, um, in terms of nerve-related pain, yeah, if a nerve is irritated, um, aggressively foam rolling, trigger point, like stretching, especially stretching, is only going to make things worse. And sometimes an irritated nerve, just like a, an overly sensitized nerve, just needs time to calm down. Um, you need time to let your nervous system, nervous system mm-hmm. relax and return to that homeostasis. So you know, when it comes to prescribing stretching, not a huge fan of stretching in general, but that's a whole nother topic. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but, but like foam rolling trigger point, uh, using Theragun stuff like that. Um, I treat those as almost, you know, recovery tools when it, or, or even priming the body for a training session. So I think of foam rolling, I definitely have a unique approach to it, but, um, I think a foam rolling is like hydrating the tissues. So, so just you- as like, just mm-hmm. as like drinking water, glasses of water throughout the day.
0: Well, you mentioned like not being pro stretching, but mo- you talked about mobility. You're saying mobility should be more like 3D, like three-dimensional. And and that's what someone's approach should be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Especially for runners because people think running is such a sagittal plane sport. So just yeah. you know, moving forward. Um, and a lot of runners have weaknesses in the other two planes of motion so that frontal plane side to side and that transverse plane that rotation plane um and usually if your body's not able to withstand those forces and those loads in those two planes of motion that's typically where things go wrong so working mobility working your joints and tissues through all of those ranges of motion can ensure that you know things are staying lubricated you know things are are mobile they're working well and then the muscles surrounding the joint are able to fire and function the way that they're supposed to
0: that's cool um and then finally like what's a holistic approach when someone says oh like, i'm so conditioned to you know how you prevent certain soft tissue or repetitive stress injuries but when you get into like nerves and nerve pain and nerve related Injuries, how can someone, you know, approach holistically um, when they think about preventing those types of injuries? You said 20% of injuries that you treat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. um, Honestly, mobility work. So making sure that, you know, you're getting movement through all levels of your spine. um, You're moving those muscles, those tissues, because nerves need blood flow too. And so, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not getting good blood flow to those areas. And that can also impede that signal can make them angry. Nerves can also become sensitized if the soft tissue around them is sticky or stuck. Um, so you can equate it to like, you know, a hose of water. If you had a little kink in that hose, the water coming out the end is not going to be, the flow is not going to be as strong. So, um, you know, yeah. So working on, on, you know, mindful mobility on a frequent basis, um, in terms of a holistic approach, you know, thinking about, you know, where your stress levels are on a Mm -hmm. a daily basis. And, um, this is a stressful time for all of us. Um, the past year has been pretty stressful and and that can take a huge toll on the body. Um, when you think about your nervous system, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're constantly in this kind of fight or flight state and you have a ton of cortisol rushing through all of your veins and vessels, then that's certainly going to um, inhibit tissue healing so being mindful
0: turning, uh, off, turning yeah. off Twitter probably is one of the
1: yeah <laughs> just turning off the tv and
0: <laughs> turn off the news um then you're good
1: you're <laughs> yeah yeah so um you know don't, don't discount the fact that stress can can have a huge impact on on the body and on and on injuries yeah.
0: No, that's a great point. That's that's kind of what I was getting at, like, besides physically, which so many runners think about through that prism, you know, just what can I do with my body? And uh, they forget the nutrition, the, the mental side of it, their nervous system. Um, so that's great. I mean, again, we can talk about this. Yeah, I can talk forever about this
1: stuff. <laughs> yeah,
0: I love it. I love it. We, we have to get you back on again because there's so many – so many things that I would like to discuss, but we can't go on, um, forever. So I appreciate you taking the time and, um, good luck with your Ironman training. Thank you. We hope everything goes off without a hitch in the fall. I hope we're in a place. Everyone is in a place where racing starts to come back in the fall, whether it's adapted slightly or or not, but, um, best of luck with the training. We'll be, um, supporting and, and cheering from, uh, from afar here
1: thank you so much thank you brian loved having you loved or having you have me here um and kind of chatting about all these things
0: yeah it's been great thanks caitlin take care
1: take care